First, we are going to talk to Dr. John McRae, who told us all about his very fascinating Cardamom project. So the Unit of Linguistic Data is the research group that I lead here at NUI Galway. Um, and we're focused on um, language data. So, you know, with modern AI, you know, it's increasingly data hungry and we have all of these deep learning algorithms that, that need much data. But, you know, languages are so diverse, there's 7,000 languages spoken in the world. And for most of these, there's, there's very little or even no data at all. So we're really focused on trying to increase the amount of data that's available um, and also trying to, you know, make algorithms that can work well when we don't have data. So working for languages where we have very little data. And why is this important? So, you know, I mean, there are major languages like, you know, English and Chinese that have billions of speakers, but it's something like about 20 to 30 percent of the world speak uh, one of these you know, minoritized languages. So there's, you know, there's, there's a vast amount of people who are not able to speak in, in you know, a big work, global language like English, but can only communicate or would prefer to communicate even through a language that they speak. For example, we see you have the Irish language in, in the context of Ireland. We, you know, many people would prefer to communicate through Irish, but, you know, there's much, there's much less linguistic data available for Irish than there is for English, for example. So, you know, it's important that we, we have internet and technology that works for everybody. And can you get, give us a sense of some of the projects that you have going on at the moment in relation to this? Yeah, so I have the Cardman project. This was an IRC laureate grant. Um, so kind of big kind of fundamental research grant that I got. And this is really focused on this area of developing a language technologies for minority and historical languages. So we have a lot of work with Indian languages. We um, have a lot of students who are from India um, and speak these languages. It's a very interesting testbed for us and trying to work out how we can work on languages which, well, have less resources. Maybe in an in Indian context, this might mean, you know, only a few million speakers as opposed to, you know, the hundreds of millions of the larger languages like um, Hindi. So we're looking at um, how we can develop language resources. The other part of this project is also looking at historical languages. So we're looking um, at languages that are are no longer spoken, like Old Irish or Old English or Latin or Greek. And these languages are, are also resource limited because we can't go and find speakers. We can't go and find a, a modern speaker of Old Irish. So we're looking at how we can use these in under-resourced language and how, sorry, in an under-resourced situation and how we can then use the modern corpus, which of course is much bigger and continually expanding, in order to better work with these historical forms of the language. And could you give us a sense of what the data collection process looks like? So a big part of the data collection is through social media. So what we're doing is we're crawling um, sites like Facebook and, and YouTube, and we're looking for where people are speaking in these minority languages. Um, so for this allows us obviously to collect data, but you know, it's quite a challenging process. And a particular issue that we get a lot when working with some of these minoritized languages is that people are often bilingual. And bilingual people speak in what we refer to as code mixing, where they will mix one language with another in the same sentence. So this is a particular challenge and how we do this kind of, you know, deep word level language identification at scale so we can crawl through, you know, all of Facebook is, is a significant challenge that we're working on. I never thought of that, actually, because language in particular is really, really tricky. And it must be very, very tricky from a data perspective, because even your basic language doesn't tend to follow logical rules. There are leaps that are made. All of a sudden, sorry, John, my head is, head is melted at the idea of applying maths and algorithms and AI to, to, to something as um, kind of flighty in a way as language. Yes, yeah, so this is this is a big 
challenge in natural language processing. So, I mean, we're approaching natural language processing with machine learning, with maths and with very much logic. And, and language is also in, in its own way very logical as well. I mean, you know, if I make even a slight grammatical error in English, any native speaker will very quickly realize this and it will sound very wrong. And, you know, you have other languages where the word order is completely different. And again, the native speakers would completely reject if there was even a slight divergence. So language does have these very strict rules as well, but they are they are very complex and um, it, it's a challenge. And, and to some extent, you know, it's a challenge that we are still figuring out. The, the rules of linguistics are, are very complex and no one has really written them all down. And the way we approach it with machine learning, we sometimes get it wrong. And we all know, of course, that there's many cases where automatic things like machine translation has produced funny or really incorrect examples of translations. So. And could I ask you, it strikes me that there's a complicating factor with social media expression because social media almost has a language of its own, um, mm -hmm. which probably overlays all these other languages because anybody, anybody that's interacting with social media, they're using hashtags and different things, but they're probably converting those protocols to their own use as well. Does that add another layer of complication? Yeah, that's, that's a, a big layer of complication. So, I mean, obviously, if... We know from, you know, if you're thinking about English, obviously there's, you know, there's spelling mistakes and there's all kinds of things in social media context. One particular complication we get with minority languages, in fact, that there isn't even a fixed spelling. So, you know, for many of these languages, there hasn't really been an agreement of, you know, how you spell every word. So people are writing down words roughly as they think they should be pronounced, which means we get a lot of very kind of localized dialect issues. You know, the way a word can be written could be very different in, in these. So... This creates a lot of challenges in terms of understanding, you know, something we don't have with a major language like English, which has standardized spelling. And does that ever give you a sense of kind of terrifying power that you're the people who are trying to codify the languages that have not been codified in this way before? And you might be locking something in for generations through this exercise. I mean, yes and no. I mean, of course, I mean, by the fact that as we're digitizing and when we're working with languages which really don't have very much resources, we do end up having to kind of standardize them in order to make our our systems work. But I would also point out that we're not standardizing it. It's the job of the communities to come together and to agree what that language is. You know, as 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 scientists, you know, we can we can document and you know we can do some kind of normalization of the text um, in order to make our algorithms work. But you know, the job of standardizing a language lays lays with those communities and by working with those communities and experts. The purpose of what you're doing, is it largely to be able to translate one language into another or is it basic things like providing an internet, you know, a, a web infrastructure within somebody's language or what What are the objectives? Yeah, so I mean, we support all objectives. So I mean, obviously a big aspect for speakers of minoritized languages is, is translation. They want to be able to then communicate with people who don't speak their language and, you know, don't be most of the rest of the world. But I also see an important goal as, as education. So we also are trying to develop um, educational resources to help people learn minoritized languages. So we know this is really important for keeping these languages alive Many of them are very threatened, you know, the economic and um, you know, other factors that drive people to speak the, you know, the big national language as opposed to their local language of their region or village, you know, are very strong. Um, but you see, for example, and again, in the Irish context, we know that Duolingo, for example, introduced Irish and has many millions now learning Irish through Duolingo. So these kind of platforms can really help to keep um, these languages alive and, you know, building these out and how we can 
quickly develop educational resources to help people, you know, get in contact with their culture and their history through the language is it's an important thing that we're looking at. Perhaps I could ask you uh, to tell us a little bit about the um, the Alexis project, I believe it's called, which is the creation of a dictionary for the 21st century. Could you explain that to us? Yeah, so in Alexis, which is the European lexicographic infrastructure, we're looking to build um, new tools um, and new resources for the creation of dictionaries. So obviously, dictionaries have changed a lot in in the past two decades with the um, internet. And, you know, before you would have, you know, a big stack of dictionaries in the corner of every classroom. Um, And nowadays, everyone just grabs their phone and Googles the meaning of a word. So we're looking at how dictionaries can be relevant in the 21st century. Obviously, you know, Googling words, it kind of works, but it's also, you know, not going to give the, the high quality information you'd get from, you know, a proper curated dictionary. But we're also looking at how dictionaries can work with modern AI and how this can be integrated into NLP pipelines. And we can use these kind of dictionary resources um, in order to improve how we work with languages. Yes, because I suppose the, the, the traditional idea of, of, of the dictionary was that, is, and I think in France they call it the salon, is it, there, there's, there's, a, there's a wise body somewhere that says yay or nay mm. to the entries and their definitions. So how are you approaching that? Who's the authority in this modern 21st century dictionary? Well, that's a good question. So, I mean, you know, every dictionary has some authorities. And if you're looking at English, you know, there's actually different spellings in different dictionaries. You know, Oxford's Dictionary and Cambridge Dictionary, of course, you know, we all know American spelling as, you know, dictionaries like Merriam-Webster, you know, they, provo- they propose different standards. But, and in many smaller languages, it's often, you know, it's a case of maybe there's a national um, body. So in Alexis, we have many of these institutes for the Estonian language or Institute for the Dutch language. And, you know, these are the officially mandated kind of gatekeepers of that language or the standardizers of this language. But as I was saying earlier, you know, for many minoritized languages, that doesn't even exist. And it's just a case of, you know, whoever is, is willing to go and make a dictionary ultimately becomes a person who, you know, says, well, this is how you spell this word. Hmm. I'd imagine you, you, you must get caught in, in thought loops around the philosophy of language when you're dealing with this all the time. What does it even mean? What, how is meaning conveyed? How do you properly translate from one language to another when people are expressing very different cultural experiences? Do you tend to go off on, on, uh, on segues like that? <laughs> yes, I mean, this is a big challenge. Um, I've, I've just I've written a grant application looking at um, senses and there's this idea of sort of like, um, you know, dictionaries list, you know, the senses of a word, you know, bank can mean the side of a river, bank can mean where you put money. And when you compare this between dictionaries, you'll find that they virtually never agree. There's always a very different number of senses. So we're trying to look at, you know, if we can make some kind of, you know, real data driven um, approach here to try to say, well, actually, there are, there are probably about this number of senses of this word. And so that's something that, that very much interests me is, you know, how do you define meaning and how do you distinguish meaning? Because there's lots of very, you know, specific cases, you know, like you can talk about a school. So if the school, the school announced that they're closed against I painted the school, you know, in one sense, the school is really the organization. So it's an organization of people who announce something. Whereas, you know, when you're painting something, you're not painting the chairs of the school, you're painting the building, right? So there's these kind of subtle changes in meaning that are, are important, but are very difficult to capture. 